I wanted to give you a disclaimer, kind of, although it's probably more of just an introduction, but it's a talk. I, I realized as I was writing my talk that I have a talk within my talk, because um, I was writing it and I was, um, I was constantly thinking about how some of the things I was going to say would be received. I've given, I think this is my fourth talk here, and I, I remember one talk specifically that I gave, and, and after the talk, somebody stood up and said something that was kind of, it felt sort of challenging to me. And ever since then, I've always put in like a like a, a caveat in all my talks to sort of address that possible thing again. This is the performer in me wanting everyone to like me. So it's sort of like that. I, I was writing this, and I realized, well, there was a freeing of things because I was writing it, and I was keeping wanting to put in caveats, and I realized that, um, and this is the disclaimer, that I, I really am just basically an optimistic, positive person. So um, that is how I look at life. That's how I look at life and how I look at things. It was, it was good. It was a liberating experience to really just be able to say, that's who I am, and I'm going to let go if, uh, you know, some people aren't that way. And um, I hope that, uh, I hope my words reach you in, um, in the most positive way possible. And so I'm sort of sharing my personal growth with you before I, write my, before I give, you my, give you my talk, which is what you all wanted. Didn't you want to share my personal growth this morning? Aren't you happy that you were able to do that? No, you just wanted to stare at me blankly while I asked you that question. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... I got the idea for this platform a few days ago, um, actually a couple of weeks ago, while riding my bike, which typically I like to do with no hands, while riding my bike, which I like to ride with, I like to do with no hands. I've had a habit of doing that since I started riding as a kid. Since my daughter's here today, although she just left, so I don't actually have to say this, I suppose the responsible parent position to state is that it is not safe to ride without holding on to the handlebars. And of course, you should always wear a helmet. Two things that I must admit I sometimes don't do, although I have been doing it more in the city because I have thought about her and when you have children, it makes you think of things you wouldn't normally think of. So, But in the context of my platform today, the fact that I ride with no hands and with no helmet actually makes sense, which you'll see why later. So riding a bike for me has always been a very freeing and centering experience, and it happens to also be my main source of exercise. Um, even before it became so, when I was still a teenager riding my bike from the suburbs of Boston to, to Boston um, for my first musical jobs, it's always been a very liberating feeling to be on the street, maneuvering around cars, people, you name it, pacing myself up the hills, loving the reward of the downslope on the other side. As long as I can remember, I've always ridden with no hands, especially going downhill. Riding a bike has almost been like playing the piano for me, and, and like the piano, I taught myself how to ride, and I've always been very comfortable on it. I guess riding with no hands has always seemed as natural as anything else to me, and I guess I've always trusted that I'd be okay, and I have always been okay. Which brings me back to what I started talking about initially. That is, how I got the idea for this platform. So I was riding home, downhill, no hands, loving the wind in my hair and on my face, and it suddenly occurred to me how incredibly trusting of an act this was. I mean, here I sat atop my bike, going at least 20 miles per hour, timing all of my moves so that I would make it through the intersection at exactly the right time, before a car turned or a pedestrian entered my path. And all the while, I had absolutely no doubt that I would be okay and that all of the factors I was relying upon in judging distance from approaching cars, people walking across the street, traffic signals, random animals that might suddenly appear, you name it, I was completely trusting that all of these factors would go exactly according to what I judged. I never for a moment thought a car would suddenly turn into my lane, or that somebody who saw me approaching would suddenly step into the street, or that the traffic light would suddenly turn a different color than what I was timing in my mind it would be, or that Mrs. Jenkins would suddenly decide to take her prize poodle Fifi for a walk at that exact moment. And at that exact moment, it hit me that this act I was performing was the absolute epitome of trust. And I began thinking about all the things I do each day that in order to turn out successfully, 
rely on dozens, if not hundreds, of other things going exactly to what, exactly according to what I trust will happen. Simply because they have always happened that way. They've happened that way almost every time. For instance, look how many things I trusted just this morning in order to drive here. Number one, that my car would start. Meaning my engine would work exactly as I assume it would. Which, of course, I don't even totally understand. I kind of get the combustion thing and the starter and the battery, and I can change my own oil. But really, what's going under, on under the hood of my car is, for the most part, pretty much a mystery. Sometimes I think that if I open it up, I'll encounter something out of an old Warner Brothers cartoon with all the mice running on little treadmills <laughs> to make it go. However, without a solid understanding of how my engine works, I still, had all the trust, I still have all the trust in the world that I could get in, turn the key, and enjoy a safe, comfortable ride to West this morning, which I did. In fact, if you think about it, or as I thought about it, my trust began before I even got in the car. It started when I assumed that the people who built my car did so correctly, and so that it wouldn't blow up when I started it. This might seem funny, but really think about it. Each car on the road is a result of thousands of people making choices to put something together that is safe and works well. My assumption is a good, that a good deal of the people who work on assembly lines may not be the most inspired people in the world. They may not wake up every day with their hearts singing, ready to help put another automobile together for the buying public. And yet, if my assumption is correct, despite their lack of inspiration and maybe even motivation, millions of cars get built every day, for the most part, and they run perfectly well. I assume that those of you who have bought lemons in the past might dispute my position, but we're talking about the majority of cars here. So even before I sat down in my driver's seat to start the car, I was operating under a basic amount of trust. Then as I began to drive, another level of trust was employed. Namely, I was trusting that everyone else on the road would basically make safe choices. In other words, of course there are drivers who may choose aggressive behavior out there. But for the most part, again, because on average this has been my experience, I trust that people will obey agreed-upon laws. And for the most part, they do. They drive on the right side of the road. They stop at red lights and intersections. They don't pass unless there's enough room. Again, I know there are aggressive drivers out there, and I've definitely been witness to more than one occasion when some impatient spirit decided to see exactly how close they could drive to my rear bumper without actually hitting it. An interesting game, though one with no clear winner. But all in all, I've always thought that our driving systems are one of the best examples of the cooperative beauty of our society. And in my many years of driving, I've had a significantly higher percentage of safe days than ones with any accidents in them. In fact, I can literally count on one hand the amount of accidents I've had, and I would assume that may be true for most of you as well. Every driver has to make a choice to follow the structure that's been laid out, and most everybody does. Most everybody pulls over when a fire engine or ambulance goes by. Most everybody. Most people don't ram you from behind, the game of bumper riding mentioned previously notwithstanding. Most people stop at red lights. Most people obey four-way stops. For the most part, driving works, and it's a fairly safe activity. I would assume that the one reason we're so, I would assume that this is one reason we're so drawn to rubbernecking, that famous activity wherein every single person slows down or stops to view an accident or somebody who's been pulled over, as if we've never actually seen a police car or a mishap before in our lives. Now that I've brought this up, I'd like to mention that I've actually always found that rubbernecking is ritual, the rubbernecking ritual to be really quite odd. I don't know, it's not as if we're really thinking, there but for the grace of God go I. Nor are we checking to see if any help is needed, especially in this day and age of cell phones. Instead, we seem to gaze and stare at the situation with the same curiosity that we, see, we view animals in the zoo. Sometimes I think that the state could probably bring an extra revenue by implementing two lanes for accidents or for people who have been pulled over. One for the people who don't care and they're waved through, and the other lane where people, <laughs> people could pay, say, $2 for the right to pull over and gawk at whatever is happening. But I digress. Statistically speaking, driving may not be sa as safe as flying, but it's still a system that we trust. And for the most part, that system earns the trust every day. However, 
The act of flying provides one more example of a system we trust, that the plane will go into the air, that the pilots won't be playing video games instead of operating the controls. And again, think of all the people who go to work each day, and again, possibly without a song in their heart about helping the airline industry run smoothly, but think about all the people who work on baggage lines, the mechanics, the runway people, the ticket checkers, hundreds of thousands of people who we assume are doing their job well, who we trust to help us travel. Yes, we are paying for the service, but paying someone does not guarantee that they will do their job effectively. Insert government joke here. I had one, but I decided not to make one, so I just said insert it. <laughs> you can all make your own one depending on your political persuasion. We may be paying to fly, but, we're all the, but are all the many people who make up the intricate system of our aviation industry paid so handsomely and rewarded so well that they feel overly inspired to make sure their job is done right? Probably not, and yet they do so anyway. Here's my first caveat of my talk. Now, one can take the cynical approach and say that they have to do a good job because they'll be fired if they don't, or on a larger scale that the airlines will get sued if something goes wrong. And of course, this may be true. But I would maintain that even if it is, I believe something more pure and beautiful about ourselves is at work in these systems, the ones I've mentioned and countless others that I don't really have time to describe. Something rare and precious is at work. The fact that people, for the most part, trust other people and that those people know they're being trusted and for the most part, they act ethically and with our best interests at heart. I can imagine a cynical person bringing up recent debacles like the Enron scandal just about now. And yes, of course, there are exceptions to the rule that I'm referring to. My overall point here is the fact that things like Enron are the exceptions rather than the rule. The media frenzy over the Enron scandal, in my opinion, overlooked one much less dramatic but considerably, considerably happier point Namely, all of the hundreds of thousands of companies that don't give in to greed and cheat their customers and boards of directors. And I'll expand on this in a few minutes. But let me get back to riding home that day without my hands, since my daughter's now downstairs and I can say that out loud. As I thought more about it, a theory began forming in my mind. Given the fact, which is what led me to my talk today, given the fact that we're, we're trusting so many systems on a daily basis, perhaps there's a way for us to channel this innate skill, or some might even call it a desire, in a more purposeful and intentional way thereby alleviating much of our daily stress and worry and bringing, out more, bringing about more peace of mind. We can all use more peace of mind, right? When I think about this question, it strikes me that perhaps we already have much of what we seek. To me, it's more a matter of embracing what's obvious and appreciating it than vexing about what is wrong with the world. Indeed, look at news itself. The majority of things reported are generally negative or shocking, the things that stand out. So it's for that very reason that I find something positive in the fact that we hear so much about bad things happening. Namely, that even though it's sad and painful that negative things happen, the good news about bad news is that, for the mo is that for most people, things work out well. Good things happen, and most of what we worry about never occurs. In fact, I remember hearing a statistic once a long time ago which stated that even, if even 10% of the bad things we worry about actually happen, we would all be dead. Which I think is a very interesting statistic. This is kind of a rhetorical question, but let me ask it anyway. How many of you woke up today and were grateful that the sun was still in the exact perfect spot in our solar system that it needed to be in order for us all to be alive? Or for that matter, that all of the planets were still aligned just so, in just the right perfect balance, as to create this amazing thing we call gravity and seasons and everything that living on planet Earth affords us? I myself have never seen an article in the New York Times with a headline like, World Still Spinning at Exactly the Right Amount in Order for Life to Continue One More Day, A Nation Size in Gratitude. Or looking at it from a smaller perspective, how many of you felt gratitude for the fact that you, for the fact that the trust you placed in any number of ordinary things, your paper, your paper arriving, the food you ate, that, that, that that trust was rewarded by those many ordinary things going well, as they do almost every day? 
But sure enough, in the absence of all that, we can always find an article on the potential dangers of global warming, terrorism, bird flu, West Nile virus, SARS, whether the new Harry Potter book will be released on time. So many unknown things out there that while we need to be aware of and prepared for them as best we can, though in some cases I don't know how prepared we really can be, these potential challenges are not reflective of the reality inherent in our daily lives. I mean, I think it makes sense to be prudent and to to defy any possible life-threatening factors out there, and I totally support research and awareness into them. All I'm saying is that along with our preparation comes what seems to me to be much hysterical hand-wringing. So if we're looking for more ways to bring trust and peace of mind into our daily lives, I think it would serve our souls to remember how many wonderful things go right every day and how much we are trusting so many intricate systems to operate efficiently. And incidentally, how many things there are that we are in control of which could pose dangers to us that we don't seem to care about at all. Things that we voluntarily do to our bodies every day that bring about disease and stress which never make the news reports. It's almost as if we're comfortable with the dangers we know even though we bring some of them on ourselves and yet the dangers we don't know terrify us. That saying about the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know or something. This seems kind of illogical to me. You never see a CNN special report with Wolf Blitzer running nightly with the scrawl underneath chronicling how many people are still smoking or a Geraldo Rivera special and how many people are still willingly avoiding exercise. We see small snippets of reports about the results of these kinds of activities from time to time, but never are any of these reports treated with anything close to the extreme sensationalism which the media ascribes to a plane's emergency landing with a suspected bomb on board, which turns out to be nothing, or a possible outbreak of TB, which turns out to be nothing. The examples are rather endless. A few years ago, I remember walking into a train station, and I saw every single TV station showing a CNN breaking news story about some substance that had been found, which was thought to have contained a germ for the bubonic plague. It lasted for literally hours. It was really scary, and then it was over. Nothing was actually found to be harmful. And all of the TV switched to the next frenzy-laden story. I remember standing there thinking that this was almost irresponsible, and that no wonder there's such tension and stress in the world. It's almost as if we are constantly contemplating our own demise, as if we're trapped in some grim masochistic belief that danger lurks around every corner. I have a theory on this. My supposition is that it's in our DNA to sense fear and to respond accordingly. Think about it. In prehistoric times and even up until the Middle Ages, it could have proved a matter of life and death if we weren't always trying to locate likely sources of peril. And now, in the absence of immediate sources of peril and immediate threats to life and limb, since the last time I checked, there weren't many wild boars or dinosaurs around, and since we're still hardwired to locate threats, I think that on some, some, some subconscious level, we're still feeding that threat-seeking part of our DNA, which is just not needed anymore. Like when we get a tiny bit of snow around here, and there's an eyewitness news team doing a winter watch special. I remember one time when they actually had a reporter putting his microphone next to someone's shoe while they were walking in what couldn't have been, in what couldn't have been more than one inch of snow. And the reporter was saying something like, okay, Jim, here's what the snow sounds like while people are walking on it. I know, but I lived through the blizzard of 78 in New England when cars were buried, highways were closed, we had 10-foot snow drifts in front of our house, the state police ordered everyone off the roads, we couldn't drive for a week. And even that was just a snowstorm. Nature happens. So maybe it's time we tried, if you go along with my supposition, maybe it's time we tried to heal this terror-seeking part of our DNA, tried to shift it somehow and channel the energy around it into something more positive and, frankly, more practical. Maybe we need to make peace with this part of ourselves as we would our inner child, Maybe we need to take this part of our psyche aside, put our arms around it, and say, in a soothing voice, of course, it's okay, terror-seeking DNA. There aren't any more TXs around. They became extinct. 
And you know those cavemen who used to jump out at you and club you for no reason at all? Well, they've evolved. They have briefcases now. (laughs) And they generally don't hit people over the heads with them, unless it's a really tense board meeting. In this way, we can make peace with our past and begin to move towards a happier future. We can employ this part of our DNA in a prudent way, but not in a way that overwhelms common sense and peace of mind. Really, there are so many examples of how much we trust systems without thinking about it and how shocked and dismayed we are when those systems let us down, which to me illustrates even more beautifully trusting of a society we really are. One such example is the recent sports story that's in the news now about a referee who's been suspended for alleged game fixing. Turns out he may have been calling extra fouls or not calling them as the case may be because he was on the take, he may have been on the take by the mafia to affect the outcome of certain games. They're currently investigating to see if other officials were involved, which doesn't seem to be the case. But it's a pretty big story in the sports world because it goes to the integrity of the game. And as I've listened to some of the reaction, it's really struck me that, again, we're such a trusting society and we seem to be missing the point of the story. We just assume that referees will be as honest and as fair as possible. Indeed, that players and coaches will be too. That no matter what temptations come their way, they'll do the right thing. They'll be ethical. And the amazing thing is, in almost 100% of the cases, people do act ethically and morally. In most cases, our trust is rewarded with a system of checks and balances that provides us with entertainment, mechanical efficiency, food, and so on. I'll bet, this is a dangerous question, but I'll try it. I'll bet if I ask everybody right now to meditate on how many things they can remember, having gone well as a result of their trusting, whether consciously or unconsciously, the majority of you might say that you've had many more positive experiences than negative. Or if you compared how many things you worried about to how many things actually happened, you may have more positive experiences than negative. The reaction in the sports world to this referee possibly undermining game bears my point, I believe. Yes, fans are mad, and rightfully so. However, they could also be grateful that this almost never happens. But for the most part, the majority of sports fans in this country are able to enjoy a fairly pure product. Again, you can expect a service to deliver because you pay for it. But even if you're paying for something, you're still at the mercy of how well the person you pay decides to do their job, how ethical and moral they choose to act. And I believe that an oft-overlooked miracle is that people much more often than not choose to act ethically and morally. When they don't, for instance, if our repair person cheats us, we can report him or her to the Better Business Bureau. We can tell our friends not to hire them. If our elected officials don't represent our views, we can try and vote people into office who do. Again, I'm not saying that bad things never happen. I'm just pointing out that from my perspective, bad things aren't the norm. And when they do occur, we can do something about them. Another example of how I feel we missed the better point when a problem arises is the reaction to the latest food poisoning scare of the Chinese toothpaste. How many of us wake up every day and appreciate the myriad of items in our bathroom cabinet or kitchen shelves, which we all have trust have been checked and are created safely and appropriately? How many of us took time to be grateful that the toothpaste scare was almost immediately detected and taken care of, which is another point of that story that I think was completely overlooked? And furthermore, how many of us took the time to be grateful that for the most part we can trust the people who are in charge of those agencies like the FDA to do the right thing and protect us. So my main question and point for the platform today is essentially this. Given that we already spend untold moments of every day inherently trusting in a wide array of systems, and given that this array of systems works fairly well, how can we parlay that into a purposeful, intentional way to help us find more peace of mind and make the world a brighter, more ethical place? I think one of the main ways we can is to look at everything from a more positive and what I believe is realistic perspective. For instance, as I mentioned before, Any news story about something negative is also a story about all the negative things that didn't happen that day. This isn't meant to sound callous or uncompassionate about the victims of crimes or accidents or the like. It's it's certainly true that I've had my share of hardship in my life. 
It's more meant a way of a way to be forward thinking and essentially to see the glass as half full. I'm not saying we should read a story about someone getting hurt on the beltway and think, oh, that's no big deal. I'm saying that when we do hear a story about someone getting hurt on the beltway or about Chinese toothpaste being tainted or mad cow disease or any of these kinds of stories that make their way into our lives, dwarfing any more positive news that's out there, that we take a step back after saying a hopeful prayer for any victim of the story and recognize that part of what makes it a news story in the first place is that it is actually very unusual. The Chinese toothpaste story and the mad cow story of a few years ago are, I think, great examples where we focus on one aspect of our food and drug system that's obviously facing a challenge, but we look at it in a negative light. Again, as I mentioned earlier, to me, the amazing news in those stories was not so much what we found, but more how incredibly quickly we found it and eradicated any potential mass problem. Likewise, when the car bombings were reported in London a few weeks back, much of the focus was on the worry of that happening here and how close the bombs had become to being detonated. But to me, some of the most obvious facts that were missing from the reporting were A, how unbelievably fast the London police were able to find and arrest the suspects in the case, B, the bombs did not go off, and C, how many thousands of streets and roads and highways were perfectly safe that morning and are perfectly safe every morning. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of potential dangers. I'm just suggesting that our terror-seeking DNA can be honored in a more pragmatic and positive way. I'm not merely saying count your blessings either. I'm saying the blessings so outweigh the challenges on a daily basis for many of us that it is much more peace of mind producing to focus on them than to dwell so intensely on the bad things that happen and how they could pretend more problems in the future. As I'm saying this, I'm thinking of the huge crises in the world. Darfur, other parts of Africa, Iraq, places where perhaps the blessings do not outweigh the challenges right now. But even in that realization, I can find a positive message. Namely, we in this country and many other countries as well, this is my second caveat of my talk, have the power and opportunity and wealth and imagination and strength and enough blessings outweighing the challenges that we can work together to bring about more positive situations in those countries if we choose to. As uh, Richard mentioned, um, well, as we were talking about before the talk, um, I'm participating in a fundraising concert for Darfur this fall, and many other well-known musicians are lending their names and talents to those kind of cases, all, causes all over the world, as they have been for many years, actually going way back to my first Awareness of music when George Harrison put on the concert for Bangladesh. We're raising awareness, we're money, and money to help make these kinds of situations more hopeful. The mere fact that I have the freedom and time to discuss the problems in other parts of the world this morning is a blessing to me. So in closing, I'd like to share a few quotes on the subject of trust that I, I hope you'll enjoy. The first comes from Booker T. Washington. Few things help an individual more than to place responsibility upon him and to let him know that you trust him. From Cardinal de Retz. A person who doesn't trust themselves can never really trust anyone else. From Henry David Thoreau, I think we may safely trust a good deal more than we do. From Indira Gandhi, you can't shake hands with a clenched fist. From John F. Kennedy, which is perhaps even more appropriate in today's post-9-11 climate, we are not afraid to entrust the American people with unpleasant facts, foreign ideas, alien philosophies, and competitive values. For a nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. And for Margaret Mead, words which will no doubt resonate strongly with some of you here today, we will be a better country when each religious group can trust its members to obey the dictates of their own religious faith without assistance from the legal structure of their country. From Thomas Jefferson, I assume talking about the creation of our country, I have no fear that the result of our experiment will be that men may be trusted to govern themselves without a master. 
And I'd like to finish with three quotes from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who I discovered uh, when the last time I did a talk was this really amazing, has a very amazing thing, a lot of things I didn't know much about him. Here are the three. Trust thyself, every heart vibrates to that iron string. The second one is, self-trust is the first secret to success. Which is actually the whole underpinning of my talk, actually. And the third one is, the glory of friendship is not the outstretched hand, nor the kindly smile, nor the joy of companionship. It is in the spiritual inspiration that comes to one when you discover that someone else believes in you and is willing to trust you with the friendship. So I would say that just as I will continue to ride my bike in a trusting way, just as I will continue to trust the many systems that I face every day, simply because, for the most part, these symptoms have earned my trust, systems have earned my trust, and just as I will always try to extrapolate the most positive experience in any given situation, I suggest that we as a society can do the same. We can look at the hundreds of thousands of things that work every day, the countless flights that take off and arrive safely, the untold amount of cars that do not get in accidents, and the amount of drivers who don't rear-end you, the incredibly huge number of people who have days without tragedy and conflict, the large sums of money that are not stolen, the innumerable amount of teenagers who make good choices every day, and so forth. We can honor the hard times that befall us and our loved ones. We can want to make the world a better place. And we can also find solace, peace of mind, centeredness, and possibly even inspiration from the simple reality that there truly is much more good than bad in this world and many more opportunities for love and light to shine than not. We can remember that bad news always contains good news if we look for it. We trust innately on so many levels, so many times throughout the day. The more aware we become of the trust that we place in our neighbors, our coworkers, our mechanics, our doctors, everyone we rely upon to have healthful and happy lives, the more we can see that there is much more cause for celebration on a daily basis. The planets which align perfectly for us, the random acts of kindness we encounter, the driver that lets us in, the miracle of birth. From the mundane to the magnificent, opportunities and reasons to trust are abundant and all around us. Embrace this, and we embrace the hope for a more happy reality that is just waiting to be discovered and talked about. Perhaps one day, even on the front page of the New York Times. Thank you.